The forest had a way of speaking if you knew how to listen. I'd come here to the vast expanse of evergreens and firs, hoping to find some peace, some respite from the ghosts of a war that still clung to me like the smell of gunpowder. My cabin, nestled in this endless sea of pines, was the last vestige of civilization before the wild reclaimed its dominion. Here, I was a lone sentinel amongst giants. Each morning, I'd stand on the porch, coffee in hand, staring into the verdant abyss. It was a ritual, a silent communion between man and nature. The forest, indifferent to my presence, whispered secrets on the wind, secrets I strained to understand. But the trees, they kept their counsel, leaving me to the solitude that was both my sanctuary and my prison. As a ranger, I'd learned to be vigilant, to anticipate danger. But in these woods, my enemies were phantoms of my own making, specters of war that haunted me more stubbornly than the mud on my boots. Solitude was a demanding companion, silent yet oppressive in its constant presence. The occasional caw of a raven or the rustling of leaves were the only things that broke the silence, reinforcing just how cut off I was from the world I once knew. Another day, I'd murmur to the trees, watching as fog curled around their trunks like wraiths dancing at dawn. No response, as expected. The solitude was a thick blanket, at times comforting, at times suffocating. Stepping off the porch, my boots sank into the loamy soil, damp with the morning's dew. The scent of earth and pine needles filled my nostrils, a smell I'd come to associate with peace, a far cry from the acrid stench of my past life. Dan, I'd chide myself softly, keep your head here, not there. But memories are relentless predators. They stalk you, waiting for your guard to drop. That particular morning, something changed. I froze, not because of the command I gave myself, but because of the stillness that suddenly enveloped the woods. A chill traced the length of my spine. Nature's eerie quietude filled the void left by my halted footsteps. Something primal within me recognized this silence as a prelude to danger. Probably just a deer, I reasoned, though the hand that once steadied a rifle was now balled into a fist at my side. My eyes scoured the tree line, seeking any movement, any hint of life aside from my own labored breathing. The isolation of this place was both a balm and a curse. It ebbed away the chaos of war, only to replace it with an unnerving tranquility where every snapped twig sounded like a gunshot, every shadow a lurking threat. Nothing's there, I insisted, though my voice lacked conviction. It was a strange thing to yearn for solitude, yet to fear the very isolation I sought. In Afghanistan, the enemy was flesh and bone. Here, in the depths of the wilderness, the enemy wore my face, haunted my thoughts, turning respite into a battlefield of a different kind. Get a grip, Dan. The words slipped out between gritted teeth as I forced my feet forward, my gaze fixed on the cabin ahead. This was my sanctuary, but even as the words formed a shield around my heart, the forest loomed large around me, a reminder that some wars are never truly left behind, and some battlefields are as much within us as they are underfoot. I was no stranger to the concept of being hunted. War had taught me that much. But in these woods, the sensation was different, unsettling. It was as if the forest itself had eyes, watching, waiting. Every shadow seemed to stretch with an intent, 
Every rustle of leaves whispered of hidden dangers. The creature, or whatever it was, had become more than a fleeting shadow in the periphery of my vision. I started seeing it more clearly, a form that was too deliberate, too intentional to be just another forest dweller. It was humanoid, yet not human, moving with a grace that belied its size. My encounters with it were brief, but enough to ignite a primal fear I hadn't known since my days in combat. I reached out to the guys from my unit, hoping they'd understand, maybe even offer some logical explanation. But the skepticism in their voices was palpable. Isolation is getting to you, Dan, they'd say. Or worse. Are you sure you're okay out there, man? Their doubts only deepened my sense of isolation, making the forest feel even more oppressive. Nightfall became a time I dreaded. I'd sit by the fire, the flames casting a feeble light against the darkness that pressed in from all sides. The creature seemed bolder under the cover of night, its visits more frequent. I could feel its presence just beyond the reach of the firelight, hear its soft movements, an eerie mirror to the chaos that churned within me. One evening the air was still, the kind of stillness that feels like a weight. I stepped out, the rifle in my hand more of a comfort than a weapon. The moon was a sliver in the sky, casting a weak light over the forest. That's when I saw it clearly for the first time. It stood at the edge of the clearing, a silhouette against the darkness. Its eyes caught the moonlight and shone like two burning coals. A chill ran down my spine. I raised my rifle, finger hovering over the trigger, but it just stood there, watching me, as if understanding the standoff between us. Then, as quietly as it appeared, it vanished into the night. I was left there, shaking, the rifle still aimed at the empty space where it had been. The next day, I tried to rationalize what I had seen. Maybe it was a bear or some other animal. But deep down, I knew it wasn't. The way it moved, the intelligence in its eyes, no animal I knew had those qualities. That night, and many nights after, I found no sleep. Every sound was magnified, every shadow a potential threat. The line between reality and imagination blurred, leaving me in a state of constant vigilance. In the clear light of day, I would chastise myself for letting fear take over. But as dusk fell and the forest's whispers grew louder, I couldn't shake the feeling of being hunted, watched. The creature, real or imagined, was always there, at the edge of my consciousness a constant reminder of the unseen terrors that lurked in the shadows of the whispering woods. The forest, with its deep shadows and ancient secrets, had become a battleground, and I, unwillingly, its sole warrior. As the sun dipped below the horizon, painting the sky in hues of fire and blood, a sense of inevitability settled in my bones. Tonight, I would confront the creature that haunted these woods, and perhaps, the demons that haunted me. I loaded my rifle, each round slipping into place with a finality that echoed in the empty cabin. My hands, steady from years of training, belied the turmoil swirling within me. This was no enemy I could understand, no adversary I had been trained to face. It was an unknown, a shadow that danced at the edge of reality. Stepping out into the twilight, the forest greeted me with its customary silence, a silence that felt like the calm before a storm. My eyes scanned the tree line, searching for any sign of the creature. The air was thick with anticipation, 
every sense heightened to its extreme. Then it came, not with a roar, but with a silence that was somehow more terrifying. It emerged from the shadows, a figure so surreal it seemed to blur the line between nightmare and reality. Tall, hunched, its eyes glowed with an otherworldly malice. For a moment, we simply stared at each other, two predators recognizing the threat in the other. Adrenaline surged through me as I raised my rifle. The creature moved with a speed that seemed impossible, its form a blur as it closed the distance between us. The first shot rang out, echoing through the forest, but the creature was undeterred. It swiped at me with claws that glistened in the moonlight, narrowly missing as I dodged to the side. The battle that ensued was primal and brutal. The creature was relentless, attacking with a ferocity that matched the wildness of the woods themselves. I fought back with equal tenacity, each shot, each movement driven by a deep, instinctual need to survive. But it was more than physical prowess that fueled me. It was a fight to reclaim my sanity, to prove to myself that this nightmare was real. The creature and I, we were reflections of each other, embodiments of the raw, untamed nature that surrounded us. As the battle raged, wounds were exchanged, blood staining the forest floor. The creature's howls filled the night, a sound that was both terrifying and exhilarating. I was pushed to my limits, every ounce of training and survival instinct called upon in this dance of death. In the end, it was a combination of luck and sheer determination that turned the tide. A well-aimed shot sent the creature stumbling, and I closed in, my rifle now useless in the close-quarters struggle. It was hand-to-claw combat, a fight that felt as old as the forest itself. The creature was strong, its body a mass of sinew and fur, but it was wounded, slowing with each movement. I could see the pain in its eyes, a pain that mirrored my own. This was no ordinary beast. There was an intelligence there, a sense of understanding that transcended the primal urge to kill. Our struggle brought us to the ground, rolling across the forest floor, each trying to gain the upper hand. I managed to grab a rock, heavy and jagged, and with a primal yell, I brought it down on the creature's head. The impact sent a shockwave through my arm, and for a moment, everything stood still. The creature lay motionless beneath me, its breath ragged and fading. I collapsed beside it, my own breath coming in short, painful gasps. Blood both mine and the creatures mixed with the soil of the forest floor. In that moment, I felt a connection to the creature, to the forest, to the very essence of survival. I lay there for what seemed like an eternity, staring up at the canopy of trees silhouetted against the night sky. The forest had gone silent, as if in respect for the battle that had just taken place. I had won, but the victory felt hollow. What had I truly defeated? a creature of the woods, or the demons that lurked within me. Eventually, I gathered the strength to stand. My body ached with a thousand pains, each movement a testament to the ferocity of our fight. I knew I had to leave, to find my way back to the cabin, but a part of me wanted to stay, to become one with the wild that had so thoroughly claimed me. As I stumbled through the forest the creature's body left behind, I couldn't shake the feeling that this wasn't the end. The forest held many secrets, and I had just scratched the surface. 
The real battle, I realized, was not against the creatures that lurked in the shadows, but against the shadows within ourselves. Reaching the cabin felt like a return to a world I no longer fully understood. The walls that had once offered sanctuary now felt like a prison, holding me back from the wild truth that lay beyond them. I was changed, and I knew that the whispering woods would call to me again, beckoning me back into their embrace, into the heart of the wild. Lying in that hospital bed, with its sterile sheets and the constant beep of the heart monitor, felt like being trapped in a world where the rules of nature no longer applied. The forest, with its wild lawlessness, seemed like a distant dream. The doctors talked about recovery, about therapy, but their words felt hollow. They didn't understand that some wounds ran deeper than flesh. Every night the hospital's fluorescent lights would flicker, casting shadows on the walls that danced like the leaves of the trees outside my cabin. In those shadows I saw the creature, its haunting eyes burning into mine. The nurses said it was the medication, the trauma, but I knew the truth. The creature had left its mark on me, a scar that was more than physical. The days blurred into one another, each marked by the monotonous routine of the hospital. Physical therapy was a torture of its own kind, a reminder of how far I had fallen from the man who had once survived the harshest conditions of war. But it wasn't just my body that was healing. It was my mind, trying to piece together the fragments of that night in the forest. The authorities had come, asking questions, their skepticism evident in every word. They talked about bear attacks, about the tricks the mind plays when faced with trauma. But their rational explanations couldn't account for the way the forest had responded to the creature, the way the shadows had moved with intent. I knew what I had seen, what I had fought, but in the sanitized reality of the hospital, those truths sounded like the ramblings of a madman. I was due for release soon, a thought that filled me with both relief and dread. The forest was calling me back, its whispers echoing in my dreams. But there was something else, a change within me that I couldn't quite understand. My senses seemed sharper, my instincts more attuned to the subtle language of nature. I joked to the nurses about being part wolf, but in the quiet hours of the night, I wondered if there was some truth to it. The night before my discharge, I lay awake, staring at the ceiling. The hospital was silent, the other patients lost in their own worlds of healing. Outside, the wind rustled through the trees, a sound that felt like a call to return to a place where I had been both predator and prey. In the morning, the doctors gave me their final instructions, their words a litany of caution and care. But as I walked out of the hospital, into the bright light of day, I felt a sense of freedom, a longing to return to the wild. The city around me felt foreign, a concrete jungle that lacked the brutal honesty of the forest. As I drove back to the cabin, the landscape changed, the trees growing denser, the air fresher. I rolled down the windows, letting the scent of pine and earth fill the car. The forest welcomed me back, its shadows greeting me like old friends. But there was a tension in the air, a sense that the battle I had fought was only the beginning. The cabin stood just as I had left it, a solitary sentinel in the midst of the wilderness. But as I stepped inside, I knew that I was not the same man who had left. The forest had changed me, in ways I was only just beginning to understand. And as the sun set, 
casting long shadows across the forest floor. I knew that the creature, or whatever it was, was still out there, waiting for me to return to the heart of the wild. The drive back to my cabin was a journey back into myself. Each mile closer to the forest, the more I felt the grip of the civilized world loosening. By the time the familiar outline of my cabin nestled among the evergreens came into view, a part of me felt like I was coming home, to a place that understood the untamed part of my soul. The cabin was unchanged, stoic, and silent, a guardian of my solitary life. As I stepped inside, the familiar scent of pine and wood smoke greeted me, a stark contrast to the sterile, antiseptic air of the hospital. It was comforting, yet there was an undercurrent of something else, a sense of unease that I couldn't shake off. I spent the first few days trying to fall back into the routine I had before the encounter. I checked the perimeter, tended to the vegetable garden, and sat on the porch staring into the depths of the forest. But something was different. The forest didn't seem like just a backdrop to my solitude anymore. It felt like a living, breathing entity, watching and waiting. My senses, heightened since the attack, picked up every rustle, every whisper of the wind. The forest was speaking, but the language was one I was still learning to understand. My nights were restless, filled with dreams of shadows and glowing eyes. I was no longer sure if I was dreaming of the creature, or if it was something more, something deeper that had awakened within me. One morning, I woke up with the realization that I couldn't keep living in the shadow of that night. I needed answers. I ventured deeper into the woods than ever before, each step a mixture of fear and determination. The deeper I went, the more alive the forest seemed, as if it was leading me, guiding me towards a truth I was both seeking and dreading. In a clearing, where the sunlight filtered through the dense canopy, I found it. Not the creature, but a sense of connection. I felt the pulse of the forest, the rhythm of life that coursed through it. For a moment, I was part of it, no longer just an observer, but a participant in the ancient cycle of nature. As I stood there, a realization dawned on me. The creature, the forest, the battle. It wasn't just about survival, it was about transformation. I had come to these woods a broken man, haunted by the ghosts of my past. But here, in the heart of nature, I had found a different kind of battle, one that had changed me in ways I was only just beginning to understand. The return to the cabin was a contemplative walk. The shadows of the evening were lengthening, but they no longer felt threatening. They were just a part of the forest, like me. That night, as I sat on the porch, the forest around me felt different. It was no longer a place of isolation, but a place of belonging. I knew the creature was still out there, and perhaps our paths would cross again. But for now, I was content to listen to the whispering woods, understanding that some mysteries were meant to remain unsolved, and some battles were meant to be fought within. I remember the day Dr. Daniel Vance disappeared like it was yesterday. He was a legend around these parts, a genius in fluid dynamics, but I always thought there was something odd about him. The day he left, our small town buzzed with whispers and rumors. 
He quit his job out of the blue, sold everything he owned, and just vanished. It was the biggest mystery our sleepy town had ever seen. I was just a kid back then, but I was fascinated by the Vance family. They were like characters out of a storybook, rich, brilliant, and a little eccentric. Dr. Vance's wife, who was much younger than him, was a PhD student when they met. She was beautiful and smart, but after marrying Dr. Vance, she too became a part of his strange new world. They had five kids, and I remember seeing them around town sometimes. They were always polite but kept to themselves. People said they were homeschooled, which made sense since the Vances lived in a huge, secluded house in the woods, far from everyone else. The Vance family wasn't just known for their brains or their wealth. They were hardcore survivalists. They prepared for the end of the world like it was their full-time job. And Dr. Vance? He was the ringleader. I heard he built a massive bunker somewhere in the woods, a fortress to keep his family safe when, or if, that apocalypse came. I never saw the bunker, but everyone in town had their theories. Some said it was an underground palace, others thought it was just a paranoid man's hideaway. But we all agreed on one thing. It was Dr. Vance's obsession. People in town had mixed feelings about them. On one hand, they brought a lot of business to local stores. I remember Mr. Jenkins, who owned the hardware store, grinning from ear to ear when Dr. Vance ordered truckloads of cement steel and who knows what else. But on the other hand, the Vances were a bit of a spectacle. We weren't used to their kind of eccentricity. Then the pandemic hit, and everything changed. It was like the world Dr. Vance always feared was finally coming true. The Vances went into full lockdown mode. No more trips to town, no more sightings of the kids playing in their yard. They just disappeared into their fortress, leaving the rest of us to face the pandemic in the real world. Most of us thought they were just being overly cautious. After all, they had been preparing for something like this their entire lives. If there was any family equipped to survive a global crisis, it was the Vances. Little did we know, their fate was far more sinister than any of us could have imagined. As the days turned into weeks, and the weeks into months, people started to forget about the Vance family. They became just another weird story in our town's history. But not for me. I couldn't shake off the feeling that something was terribly wrong. I often found myself staring at the woods, wondering what secrets lay hidden in its depths. It wasn't until three years later that the truth about the Vance family would shock us all. And I, of all people, would be the one to uncover it. I never imagined my quiet, uneventful life would be turned upside down by my dog, Ripley. He's a half-Bernese, half-Collie mix with a knack for getting into trouble. One afternoon, he just vanished into the thick woods behind our house. I called for him until my voice was hoarse, but he didn't come back. That's when I decided to go look for him, not knowing it would lead me to the Vance family's bunker. The woods were dense and unwelcoming, the kind of place where you could easily get lost but I knew these woods like the back of my hand. I've played here since I was a kid, building forts and climbing trees. But that day the woods felt different, eerie, like they were hiding something. I stumbled upon the bunker purely by accident. I was following Ripley's paw prints when I saw it, a strange structure partially hidden by overgrowth, with faded police tape flapping in the wind. The door was ajar, 
hanging off its hinges, and there were scorch marks around the lock. My heart pounded in my chest. This had to be the Vance family's bunker, the one everyone in town talked about but no one had actually seen. Curiosity overcame my fear. I stepped inside, my phone's flashlight cutting through the darkness. The bunker was like a maze, with corridors leading off in every direction. It was silent except for the sound of my own breathing and the distant drip of water. The air was stale and heavy, as if it hadn't been disturbed in years. I found a room that looked like a living area. There were beds with yellowed sheets, a dining table set with rotten food, and children's toys scattered on the floor. Everything was covered in a thick layer of dust. It was like walking into a time capsule, a snapshot of life frozen in time. The more I explored, the more unsettled I felt. The bunker was huge, much larger than I had imagined. There were rooms filled with supplies, a library, a gym, and what looked like a classroom. It was clear the Vances were prepared for the long haul, but something had gone terribly wrong. I found notebooks filled with frantic scribbles, diagrams of the bunker, and what looked like escape plans. It was as if they were trying to solve a puzzle, a way out of their own fortress. But the most disturbing thing was the children's room. The beds were unmade, toys left mid-play, and on the wall, written in a child's handwriting, was a single word, help. That's when the reality of the situation hit me. The Vances hadn't just disappeared. They had been trapped here, in this bunker, their supposed safe haven. My mind raced with questions. What happened to them? Why didn't they leave? And most importantly, where were they now? I was so lost in my thoughts that I didn't hear the faint whimpers at first. It was Ripley. I followed the sound and found him, huddled in a corner of a dark room, his fur matted and eyes wide with fear. Relief washed over me as I scooped him up in my arms. But I knew we weren't alone. The bunker held secrets, dark and terrifying, and I had just scratched the surface. With Ripley safely in my arms, I felt a surge of courage. I needed to understand what happened to the Vance family. The bunker, with its twisting corridors and silent rooms, felt like it was watching me, holding its breath as I uncovered its secrets. The deeper I ventured, the more the bunker revealed its tragic tale. I stumbled upon a room that must have been Dr. Vance's office. Papers were strewn everywhere, and amidst the chaos I found a diary. It belonged to Dr. Vance. The entries started off methodically, detailing their daily routines and preparations for living off-grid. But as I flipped through the pages, the tone shifted. Paranoia crept in. He wrote about the pandemic, how it was the beginning of the end, and how their bunker was the only safe place. Then came the entries about the lockdown they imposed on themselves. It was meant to be a trial run, six months of total isolation to test their readiness. But just a few weeks in, something went wrong. A sickness, he described, unlike any flu. It struck them one by one, starting with his wife, Miranda. The entries became more erratic, filled with fear and confusion. He mentioned hearing strange noises at night, feeling like they were not alone. In one of the final entries, Dr. Vance wrote about a door, a door that hadn't been there before, appearing mysteriously in the lower levels of the bunker. He was obsessed with it, convinced it was the source of their misfortune. 
My heart raced as I pieced the story together. The Vances hadn't just succumbed to an illness. They were plagued by something far more sinister, an unseen presence lurking in their safe haven. Armed with this new information, I ventured further into the bunker. The air grew colder, the silence more oppressive. I found a room that looked like it had been used for quarantine. Makeshift beds lay scattered, medical supplies littered the floor, and on the wall, a child's drawing of a family with big, sad eyes. It was heart-wrenching, but it was the discovery of a hidden room that chilled me to the bone. Behind a false wall, I found what Dr. Vance had described, the mysterious door. It was unlike any door in the bunker, old and rusted, as if it belonged to another time. A feeling of dread washed over me. This door was an anomaly, an intrusion into their world. I stood there staring at the door, wondering if I should open it. But the fear of what lay beyond held me back. The diary's words echoed in my mind. Dr. Vance's fear was palpable in his writing. He had been driven to the brink of madness by this door, this unexplainable presence in their sanctuary. With a heavy heart, I decided to leave the door closed. Some mysteries are better left unsolved. I needed to get out of the bunker to breathe fresh air again. But as I retraced my steps, a chilling thought gripped me. What if the presence Dr. Vance wrote about was still here, watching me, just as it had watched them? I quickened my pace, Ripley's soft whimpers urging me on. We had to leave this place, leave its secrets and its shadows behind. But even as I emerged into the fading light of the woods, I knew this experience would haunt me. The Vance family's tragedy was now a part of me, a story of a safe haven turned prison, a reminder of how quickly our worlds can unravel. The bunker was a labyrinth, and with each step, I felt like I was delving deeper into a nightmare. Ripley, sensing my fear, stayed close, his body tense. The diary's revelations had left me shaken, but I had to find a way out. As I wandered through the dimly lit corridors, the eerie silence was suffocating. I stumbled upon a room that seemed like it had been a workshop. Tools were scattered everywhere, and in the center was a workbench cluttered with mechanical parts and what looked like prosthetics. It was here that the full extent of Dr. Vance's descent into madness became evident. The walls were lined with blueprints and diagrams, obsessively detailed, but it was the arm on the bench that stopped me cold. It was small, like it belonged to a child, and it was unnaturally preserved. I felt a wave of nausea as the realization hit me. In his grief and insanity, Dr. Vance had tried to rebuild his family. I had to get out, but every turn seemed to take me deeper into the bunker. In my panic, I barely noticed the temperature dropping, the air growing denser, until I entered a room that froze me in my tracks. It was colder here, and the walls were lined with shelves of supplies, but what caught my attention was the door at the end of the room. It was the door Dr. Vance had written about, rusted and out of place, with a strange oily substance oozing from its frame. I remembered Dr. Vance's warning in his diary about the door and the radiation it emitted. I backed away, but as I did, I heard something, a low, guttural moan that echoed through the room. Ripley growled, his hair standing on end, and I knew we weren't alone. Turning around, I saw them, the Vances. 
They were like something out of a horror movie, their bodies emaciated, their eyes hollow. They moved towards me, jerky and unnatural. My heart pounded in my chest, and for a moment, I was paralyzed with fear. Then survival instinct kicked in. I grabbed Ripley and ran, dodging past the figures that reached out with bony hands. I didn't know where I was going. I just knew I had to get away from those... things. The bunker seemed to twist and turn around me, and I was hopelessly lost. Finally, I saw a staircase leading upwards and took it two steps at a time, emerging into a familiar corridor. Relief washed over me, but it was short-lived. The exit hatch was jammed. I pulled and tugged with all my strength, but it wouldn't budge. Desperation set in. I couldn't go back the way I came. The Vances. Those things were still there. I searched the room frantically and found a crowbar. With renewed hope, I wedged it into the hatch and pushed with all my might. Finally, with a loud creak, the hatch gave way, and a sliver of light broke through the darkness. I heaved it open, fresh air rushing in to fill the stale bunker. But as I climbed the ladder to escape, a chill ran down my spine. I felt something watching me, an unseen presence lurking in the shadows. I shuddered, knowing that whatever haunted the Vances might still be down there, waiting in the dark. Once outside, Ripley and I didn't stop to catch our breath. We ran through the woods, the bunker a dark spot in my memory. I didn't dare look back, fearing what I might see. As the trees thinned and my house came into view, reality began to set in. What had I just experienced? Was it real, or had the isolation and fear played tricks on my mind? The Vances, their tragic fate, and the horror in the bunker felt like a nightmare. But the mud on my shoes and Ripley's frightened whimpers told me it was all too real. I reached home and locked the door behind me. My parents were still at work, the house empty and silent. I sat down trying to process everything. The diary, the hidden door, the Vances. It all swirled in my head, a terrifying puzzle I couldn't solve. I decided to keep it to myself for the time being. Who would believe such a story? A boy and his dog uncovering the dark secrets of a prepper's bunker. It sounded like something out of a horror movie. That night, I couldn't sleep. The images of the bunker, the diary, and the ghostly figures of the Vance family haunted me. I lay in bed staring at the ceiling, feeling a heavy weight on my chest. The world seemed a lot scarier, a lot more unpredictable. And I knew, deep down, that what I had found in the bunker was just the beginning of a mystery that would consume me. I made a decision then. I had to find out more about the Vances, about that door, and what really happened in that bunker. The truth was out there, and I was going to uncover it, no matter how frightening it might be. Exhausted, both physically and emotionally, I lay in my bed, staring at the ceiling. The events in the bunker played over and over in my mind like a twisted movie I couldn't pause. I had escaped, but the terror of what I'd witnessed clung to me like a second skin. The next morning, I woke up feeling feverish. My parents, worried, took me to the hospital. The doctors said it was pneumonia, likely from the damp, moldy air in the bunker, but deep down, I knew it was more than that. It was the weight of the secret I carried, the haunting images of the Vance family, their distorted faces and hollow eyes. In the hospital, 
My mind was a whirlpool of thoughts. I tried to piece together the puzzle, the Vance family's tragic end, the mysterious door, and the unspeakable horror that lurked behind it. I wondered if Dr. Vance had opened a door to something otherworldly, something that had consumed his family and almost claimed me too. One afternoon, a sheriff's deputy came to visit. He asked odd questions about what I had seen in the bunker. His eyes searched mine for truth, but I couldn't bring myself to tell him everything. The fear of not being believed, of being thought of as crazy, kept me silent. I gave vague answers, hiding the chilling reality of what I'd encountered. After a week in the hospital, I was sent home, but home didn't feel the same anymore. The shadows seemed darker, the silence more profound. I was constantly looking over my shoulder, half expecting to see a gaunt figure from the bunker standing in the corner of my room. One night, as I lay in bed, trying to find sleep, I heard a faint static noise coming from the basement. Curiosity overcame my fear, and I crept downstairs. The sound was coming from an old shortwave radio my dad had kept, a relic from his younger days. As I listened, a voice emerged from the static, barely audible but unmistakably human. It was a whisper, repeating the same phrase over and over. Let them go. Let them go. It sent chills down my spine. Was it Dr. Vance? Was he still trapped in that otherworldly place, reaching out for help? The experience was the last straw. I couldn't stay in that house anymore, with its memories and shadows. I convinced my parents to move, telling them I needed a change of scenery for my health. They agreed, not fully understanding my urgency. We moved to a different town, a fresh start, but the memories of the bunker never left me. They lingered in my dreams, a constant reminder of the horror I had escaped. The Vance family's fate remained a mystery. The bunker was sealed off, and the town slowly forgot about them, but I couldn't. I often wondered if there were others like them, other doors hidden around the world, leading to unspeakable horrors. As I grew older, I realized that some mysteries are better left unsolved, but the experience changed me. It taught me that the world is full of hidden terrors. And sometimes, the safest place is right in front of us, in the light, away from the shadows of the unknown. I grew up in northern Montana, surrounded by the stunning landscapes that the state had to offer. It was a place of endless beauty, where summers were spent hiking and winters were for snowboarding. To me, Montana was one of the most captivating states, mainly due to its incredible versatility. It boasted vast forests, abundant wildlife, historic cities, sprawling farmlands, serene lakes, and so much more. The people, especially the locals, were equally remarkable. Each person had their unique story, whether it was filled with joy or sorrow, and they were all captivating in their own way. I had always cherished Montana for its charm and warmth, but recently, something unsettling had started to unfold. At first, it seemed like nothing more than the occasional odd encounter, something not entirely out of the ordinary for a place like this. You'd cross paths with peculiar individuals, some who had fallen victim to the growing drug issues plaguing the area. 
Occasionally, you'd spot strange-looking animals on the side of the road late at night, leaving you wondering whether it was a dog, a coyote, or something altogether different. But then there was this man. He was beyond ordinary. It happened on an otherwise ordinary day while I was working at a small shop that sold touristy knickknacks, much like many other businesses in the area. I remember the boredom that seemed to stretch time as I watched the clock, the store unusually quiet for an early June afternoon. It was around 2 p.m. when he walked in. He was accompanied by two individuals who seemed like strangers to him, judging by their conversations. Perhaps he was their tour guide. As the couple went to browse our products, he lingered behind, fixated on our community board. Initially, I paid him little attention. He appeared entirely ordinary, almost forgettable. I remember thinking to myself, he's painfully normal looking, my fleeting judgment and error I would soon regret. Suddenly, as if he had sensed my thoughts about him, he snapped his head from the board to me. It felt as though I might have been the first human he had interacted with in a long time. He approached the cash register with an unsettling robotic manner. His normalcy had transformed into something inhuman and suffocating. His smile was just a bit too wide, his eyes devoid of any emotion or thought, making them feel like windows to a malevolent abyss. Staring into his eyes was like staring at pure evil. He muttered something that sounded foreign and incomprehensible to me, as if it belonged to no known language. What was that? I asked, putting on my best customer service voice, though his very presence was choking me. In an instant, his expression changed. The inhuman smile vanished, replaced by a scowl. I had clearly provoked him in some way. Nothing, he mumbled, then walked away, and I could finally breathe again. I never saw him leave. The couple exited the shop about 30 minutes later, but he was not with them. I closed the store that night, and he was nowhere to be found. He never left the premises. About a week later, an unpleasant odor began to waft from the small crawl space or attic above our tea towel section. The stench had likely been baking in the June heat. My manager suspected it was a bird or squirrel that had slipped through a hole in the old roof. He sent me up there to investigate. As I climbed the ladder into that dim space, Part of me half expected to find the man, or whatever he was, from before. He wasn't there. All I discovered was a pool of blood and an old pocket knife that appeared to have been dropped by someone doing maintenance work. The rotting odor gradually faded in the days that followed, forgotten by the rest of the staff. But I remembered. I couldn't forget the man who seemed anything but human, who never left the store, and the unsettling presence of blood in that crawl space. Maybe he had slipped away unnoticed, or perhaps my imagination had played tricks on me. He had left the store with the couple, but he didn't exit with them. That encounter with that sinister man had instilled a fear in me, a fear I had never experienced before. I had never been afraid of anything, having grown up loving horror movies and all things spooky. Yet, he was someone who genuinely terrified me. I had spoken to evil, or at least someone I believed to be evil, and that memory would haunt me forever. The fear of seemingly ordinary people would forever linger in the depths of my mind, gnawing at my thoughts every time a new customer entered the shop. It planted a paranoia in me that I doubted I would ever shake. Days later, I felt an inexplicable pull to return to that attic. Something or someone called to me, though I couldn't discern what 
or who it was. My ascent up the ladder was agonizingly slow, as if I were moving through thick syrup. And there, in that attic, he awaited. He was in that space, or crawl space, or whatever my manager and the local paper wanted to call it. Lifeless. According to the police, it was a drug overdose, and that's what everyone chose to believe. Man found dead in local business. Drugs claim another life in the community, read the headline. But I didn't buy it. In my heart, I knew that drugs didn't kill him. What did, I couldn't say, and I had no desire to find out. It was my second time sharing the eerie happenings in my home state of Montana, and this particular day would leave an indelible mark on my memory. My friend Sarah and I had always been drawn to the wilderness, making it a tradition to explore the natural wonders of our state every summer. Whenever one of us stumbled upon something intriguing, be it an abandoned building hidden in the forest or a picturesque clearing, we couldn't wait to share the discovery with the other. Our adventures had taken us to all sorts of places, from derelict decontamination buildings to forsaken vehicles, and even a peculiar clearing filled with women's clothing. Montana's wilderness held an array of secrets waiting to be unearthed. On this particular day, we found ourselves deep in the forest, perhaps three miles from Sarah's house, though it was hard to gauge the exact distance. The dense woods had a knack for disorienting even the most experienced outdoorsmen. We were in search of a location our friend Jace had mentioned, a place he jokingly referred to as a cult site. According to him, there was a bizarre white face painted on a felled tree stump wedged between two other trees, surrounded by the remnants of a massive bonfire. We knew Jace had a penchant for exaggeration, but Sarah was determined to distract me from the unsettling memory of a recent encounter with a deceased man at work. It's just something to pass the time, Sarah said, trying to ease my anxiety. My mother always said, It's the thought that counts. As we ventured deeper into the woods, I couldn't shake the feeling that we were being followed. Strange sounds emanated from the forest behind us, loud steps and indistinct chatter that might have been animals. But we both knew this forest harbored creatures capable of mimicking human speech. We walked in silence, Sarah preoccupied with deciphering the directions scribbled on her hand by Jace. I remained vigilant, my unease growing with every branch that snapped. Suddenly Sarah tripped over a fallen tree, almost landing face first in the dirt. I hurried to her side, helping her to her feet. Are you all right? I asked, concerned. She shot me a glare. Another branch snapped. Yeah, I'm fine, she replied, but her focus had shifted. It wasn't on her bleeding hand or the creatures following us. Instead, it was on a white shard protruding from the dried mud. I reached down and extracted the shard carefully. It turned out to be a fragment of a vertebrae. Sarah wiped her hands on her jeans to rid them of dirt and blood before taking the bone from me. What the hell, she muttered, rolling her eyes. I could have cut my hand on anything, but it just had to be a bone? This is some BS. She flicked the bone away, and it disappeared into a huckleberry bush. Make sure to disinfect that thoroughly when we get back, I advised, suppressing a laugh. Sarah had a knack for getting injured, and it was only fitting that she would cut herself on a bone while searching for a cult site. Thanks, Doc, she quipped, brushing past me and resuming our trek. I followed, quietly amused by her irritation. 
With Sarah's presence, most of my lingering paranoia about being followed had dissipated. Her mere presence lifted my spirits. That's how we were, able to find humor in almost any situation when we were together. After about five more minutes of walking, we stumbled upon the spot we were looking for. The unmistakable white-painted face on the tree stump confirmed it. The site, littered with empty beer cans and a substantial fire pit, appeared more like a party spot than a cult site. As I had suspected, Jace had exaggerated. Sarah sat down on a large rock near the bonfire pit, cradling her injured hand. This was kind of a bust, she grumbled, glancing around at the trees. She had dragged me here and was already the one growing bored. Typical. I hummed in agreement and decided to survey the area's perimeter. Suddenly my head snapped to the side as I heard movement. The paranoia rushed back stronger than ever. There was definitely something out there. My eyes and ears seemed to deceive me. Figures hidden in the shadows of the trees, cloaked in darkness, appeared to be watching us. Then, disaster struck. I stepped into a shallow hole, falling to my knees and bruising them on what I initially thought were rocks. But as I gazed down, disbelief washed over me. These weren't rocks. The hole was filled with bones. Not just any bones, but a plethora of them. Too many to belong to a single creature, or even a human. Vertebrae, femurs, jawbones, ribs. An assortment of bones filled the pit. Sarah yanked me out of the hole by my hood, pulling me to my feet. It was time to leave. The journey home was eerily quiet. There were no more sounds from behind us, no birds chirping, and even the distant river seemed to have lost its voice. Sarah and I never spoke of what we had seen, not to each other or anyone else. The knowledge of those bones was confined to us, the creatures that followed us, and our own thoughts. That night when I drove home, a feeling of unease settled over me. It was as if they were watching me from the trees, a silent threat lurking in the shadows, warning me not to reveal what we had found. Even inside my home I could sense their presence. Their eyes were on me, and I wondered if they had always been watching. I saw one of them emerging from the tree line, moving stealthily in the shadows. I was frozen in place, unable to do anything but follow it with my gaze. Then came a knock on my door, I couldn't muster the courage to open it. Scratching followed, a sinister attempt to intimidate me into facing whatever lurked outside. I stood in my kitchen, utterly still, staring out the window. The scratching felt like an eternity, though it may have been mere seconds. Eventually, it retreated into the shadows and then vanished into the tree line, allowing me to regain control of my senses. The next morning, when I left for work, Something had been terribly scratched into the mahogany door, a cryptic message neither my boyfriend nor I could decipher. I couldn't help but wonder if they wanted me to be next. Next for what? I wasn't sure, and I didn't want to find out. This is the third part of things I've experienced in Montana over the course of a summer. It was a warm summer evening in Montana, and the haunting presence that had been shadowing my every move for two weeks had begun to take a toll on my sanity. Those unseen eyes followed me relentlessly. Their unyielding gaze felt like an icy grip on my soul, never letting go. Bones had started appearing on my property. They would materialize mysteriously, whether it was on my porch, amidst the garden, or even perched ominously atop my car. These macabre discoveries had become a gruesome routine, each one gnawing away at my fragile sense of security. 
I tried to hide this disturbing reality from my boyfriend, Luke. I didn't want to burden him with the same terror that had ensnared me. I rarely ventured beyond the confines of my yard anymore, except for work. The dread of those unseen watchers had imprisoned me within my own property, a prisoner in my own life. I wished I could tell Luke why, but I couldn't find the words. He shouldn't have to share in the horrors that haunted my every step. It was July now, a month since this living nightmare began in June. Those unsettling events had left an indelible mark on my psyche, and as I pen down these words, I'm certain they'll remain etched in my memory until my dying day. One fateful night, Luke insisted on dragging me out of the house. He was determined to pull me from my self-imposed isolation and take me for a late-night drive, just as we had done in the early days of our relationship. We used to revel in those moonlit drives, talking about everything and nothing as we sped down dark, desolate back roads. But now, I couldn't help but wonder if those sinister beings had been watching us even then, lurking in the shadows. For thirty minutes we drove in silence, the weight of unspoken words hanging heavy between us. Finally, Luke couldn't bear it any longer. Just tell me what's wrong, Jessa, he implored, his eyes fixed on the road while I continued to stare out into the inky blackness of the woods. Nothing's wrong, I sighed, unable to reveal the truth. You went into the woods with Sarah one day, and it's like you didn't actually come back. Even Sarah is acting weird, Luke said, turning to study my face as he spoke. I'm right here, aren't I? I countered, meeting his gaze, but I knew that my physical presence couldn't conceal the turmoil within. Not mentally, he muttered, shifting his attention back to the road. He was right but I couldn't bring myself to confess the horrors that had become my reality. The eerie sightings in the woods, the bone-filled hole, and the unsettling truth about the man from work. Then, I saw them. The shadowy figures draped in cloaks, lining the woods, more of them than I had ever seen before. Panic coursed through my veins, and I instinctively grabbed my phone, intending to capture proof of their existence. What are you doing? Luke's voice wavered as he glanced at the phone clutched in my trembling hand. You don't see them? I stammered, taking a quick snapshot of the figures. See who? His question hung in the air, but when I turned to look at him, the figures had vanished into the night. Are you doing drugs? Luke accused, a note of disbelief in his voice. I couldn't believe he would suggest such a thing. He knew how vehemently I avoided any involvement with drugs given the pain they had caused in my life. I began to respond to defend myself against his baseless accusation, but then it happened. One of those shadowy entities darted out in front of the truck. Luke swerved violently, sending the old truck careening off the dirt road and straight into a tree. Amidst the deafening chaos, all I could hear was my own scream. The truck collided with the tree and the impact sent my head crashing into the dashboard. I survived the crash, the doctor said miraculously with minimal injuries. They assured me that it could have been much worse, that I could have been gravely injured or killed. But that consolation offered me no solace, for my boyfriend Luke had paid the ultimate price, a victim of those enigmatic beings that they insisted were merely dear. Tears refused to come, as if my grief was held hostage by the same invisible force that had tormented me. Luke was gone, and the reality of his loss was as unrelenting as the sinister presence that had haunted me. 
I spent hours staring at the photo I had taken, my cracked phone screen mirroring my fractured world. In the dimly lit image, there was nothing to be seen, just an empty dirt road, illuminated solely by the headlights of the truck at 1 a.m. on July 5th. They weren't there. Maybe, just maybe, Luke had been right in his final moments. There was nothing there, and I was slowly descending into madness. But I couldn't accept that. Luke had swerved for a reason. They had taken him for a reason. The unsolved mystery of those shadowy watchers and the grim fate that befell Luke remained etched in my mind, a chilling enigma that would haunt me for the rest of my days. This is my fourth and final story of events that happened to me over the course of a summer in my home state of Montana. After the events of this part, I never experienced anything to this degree again. Of course, there were still weird things happening, but nothing that could ever compare to what I have already told or what I am about to tell. Luke was gone. My boyfriend was gone. No matter how hard I tried, I still couldn't bring myself to cry over his death. It's like all the tears in my eyes had dried up. I think it was because I was angry rather than sad. Angry at myself for not telling him while we were safe in my house. Angry at Sarah for dragging me to the woods that day. Angry at those cloaked things who killed him. I wanted revenge. No, I needed revenge for his death. I sat in my house on July 15th, staring down at the coffee table. I knew that they were out there, and they knew I was in here. I hadn't gone to work since Luke's death, or I should say murder, and they had been there, in the trees, the entire time. Killing him made something in my mind snap. Without even realizing what I was doing, I stormed outside, into the moonlit yard. I was entirely vulnerable to whatever they wanted to do to me. I half hoped they'd kill me like they had killed Luke. I didn't say anything as I stood barefoot in my grass, staring into the forest. I was challenging them. I could hear them talking, that same talking I heard when Sarah and I had been looking for that place in the woods, indistinct and almost animal-like. It sounded like how that man at work had sounded. In unison, they all stepped out of the tree line. There were ten of them, all standing around six feet and thin, thin like skeletons. Just seeing the figures made me want to turn around and run, barricade myself inside and grab my thirty, thirty but I had to stand my ground for Luke. I had to face these creatures, find out why they were doing what they were. What do you want from me? My voice involuntarily cracked. Facing them was choking me, making me nauseous. They made me feel inferior. A hot searing pain struck through my body, sending me to my knees. Some voice in the back of my brain told me they didn't really want anything, that I was just their toy for the time being. Black spots danced in my vision and they began to step closer towards me. They wanted to use me. To kill me, I think. Everything began to blur together. I remember them grabbing me, their hands feeling like ice on my body, like corpses were gripping my arms, forcing me to move. Then I remember blinking and being in the woods, not sure how much time had passed or how we were moving as fast as we were. I tried to struggle, but that feeling of trying to move through syrup began to happen again. I was too slow to escape, even if I could get out of their holds. Then, we were there, the place with the bones. It looked much different in the night, more sinister. Even after I had discovered the bones, it wasn't like this. The flames from the fire reflected off the trees, 
casting evil-looking shadows, shadows that monsters could hide in, shadows that these cloaked things created to mask their sins. The cloaked people filled the clearing, gathered around the fire, some turned to watch as I was brought in. They threw me down next to the fire pit, the only thing between me and the flames being rocks. I needed to escape. One began to speak. Another forcefully grabbed my left arm. It stopped speaking. There was silence. Then my screams pierced the air. It forced my hand into the flames, burning my flesh from my bone. It had been the worst pain I had experienced in my life. So excruciating I began to black out again. The figure pulled my hand out of the hellfire and pushed me back towards the crowd. Before I opened my eyes, I could smell dirt and smoke. They were familiar scents from when I was camping as a young kid, playing in the dirt as the adults started a fire to roast marshmallows over. Unfortunately, I couldn't smell marshmallows, and I wasn't a naive seven-year-old anymore. I forced my eyelids open. I was laying face down in the dirt. The events that I could remember played in my head. My arms shook and burned as I tried to push myself up. My entire body felt like it was on fire. I took in my surroundings. It was daylight now, probably early morning. I was at that place still. They were gone, and the fire was out. I was in the hole where the bones had been, but they weren't there either. It was almost like I had imagined it all. I knew I hadn't, though. A little smoke was still rising from the fire pit, but my hand wasn't burnt. I stumbled out of the hole, forcing myself not to become sick. I held my arms straight out, inspecting myself further. Red handprints littered my forearms right where those things were holding me. My head felt too heavy for my own body. Was it all in my imagination? Had I walked 12 miles from my house in the dark, barefoot, without realizing what I was doing? I don't think so. As I write this, I wish I knew what had truly happened that night. Whether it really was a weird cult hiding in the Montana wilderness, or my own grief-filled delusions. I haven't been stalked by their gaze since then, though. They no longer hid in the shadows on my property, watching my every move, and for that, I am thankful. Still, I wonder if they're out there, hiding deep in the forest away from civilization, or maybe even tormenting another poor person, killing their loved ones, driving them insane. I wish I knew the truth.